We'll look this morning at verses 18 through 22, Matthew 21. I don't know about you, but I hate when things don't work the way they're advertised. On television, magazines, and on the internet, you see stuff, and it just seems like you'll do everything. Even an old skeptic like me is sometimes amazed at how good things look. But dare to plop down your money, and reality often hits you in the face. What looks so good, made such great claims, could do anything you imagined, as it turns out, often just doesn't work. All the frustration, the disillusionment, when things are not what they claim to be. In reality, that's not just the stuff of good marketing and cheap products, however. Too often, that's also the description of experience with Christians. Our text this morning warns against such spiritual fraud and sets before us a solution. Let me read the text. Matthew 21, 18. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city of Jerusalem, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, to tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. A dicey text, you might imagine. Two lessons here that we should learn from this text. One from the first part and one from the second part. The first one is this. God hates fakes. Is that pithy enough? God hates fakes. Did you ever notice that the most common objection to Christianity by the unbelieving world is not the intellectual problems that we often think about in uh, apologetics? No, the most common objection to Christianity is that the church is full of hypocrites. People claiming to be Christian, but denying their claim by their own lives. And unfortunately, people encountering such hypocrisy then feel justified in their unbelief. But this text says that such hypocrisy, no matter how common, invites God's Judgment, for the Lord hates fakes. Let me explain, for this is the point of the fig tree incident in our text. First, let's learn a little bit about Middle Eastern fig trees. They're extremely common in the area around Jerusalem. Though they grow very slowly and are fairly small, even when mature, they do provide good shade in a hot climate. So that in the Bible, the good life is often described as sitting under the shade of your own fig tree, which indicates that there's been prosperity and peace for a number of years. But the point is not about shade or 
status or prosperity. The point about fig trees is about figs. Fig trees are unusual in that they produce two crops a year. In the spring, small cherry-sized figs from last year's growth, and then later in the fall, a larger crop from the new growth. I once planted a fig tree in my yard because I wanted to be able to sit under the shade of my own fig tree. I learned that in this climate, there are no two crops, there's one. <laughs> Frost comes before the second. That early crop, though, appears about the same time as the leaves, perhaps even slightly earlier than the leaves. It's not expected really before the end of the March, and the figs won't actually probably be ripe until May or June, yet the appearance of leaves always signals that fruit is present. Though it may not be as tasty as it will be when it ripens some more. Now the account in our text takes place in April, because we know that because it's Passover time. So Jesus was walking with his disciples from Bethany, that's uh, up in the hills, down to Jerusalem, and he saw this fig tree in full foliage. It was a bit early for figs, Mark tells us, but here's a tree advertising with its leaves that it indeed has fruit. Come and enjoy, it beckons. So Jesus did. But to his disappointment, but did but to his disappointment, there was no fruit. No fruit. So seeing the opportunity to teach a spiritual truth, Jesus cursed the tree. May you never bear fruit again, he said. And immediately it began to wither. In fact, by the next morning, according to Mark, the disciples noticed that the whole tree was withered. So what's the point of this incident? Jesus was not doing some act of raw power or vindictive anger against a tree, which disappointed him. Jesus was teaching a truth so important that it was worth sacrificing one fig tree to make the point sink deep into the conscience of his disciples and of you and of me that hypocrisy invites God's judgment. Fruitlessness is condemned. Show without substance is despised by God. In short, God hates fakes. We see this even more pointedly if we consider the context of this incident. This did not take place in a vacuum. vacuum. It was related to what was taking place in Jerusalem. Matthew tells us simply that this occurred right after Jesus cleansed the temple of its, all of its commercialization, which had taken over the place. Do you see the point? This miracle was a symbolic prophecy against Israel. William Hendrickson explains a bit. He says, the pretentious fig tree had its counterpart in the temple where on this very day a lively business was being transacted so that the sacrifices might be made, while at the very same time the priests were plotting to put to death the very one apart from whom all those offerings had no meaning at all. Plenty of leaves, but no fruit. 
bustling religious activity, but no sincerity and truth. You see, the truth we learn today first applied to Israel when it happened. God hated the hypocrisy going on in Jerusalem, and it invites his judgment, for he hates fakes. That had been throughout the old, true throughout the Old Testament scriptures, but it was soon to, pro to prove true yet again very painfully for Israel, for this city, which rejected Jesus at about 30-some A.D., was destroyed in 70 A.D. by Roman troops. Oh, but that was not even the last evidence of this truth. William Barclay writes, profession without practice was not only the curse of the Jews, it has been throughout the ages the curse of the church. During his early days in South Africa, Gandhi inquired into Christianity. For several Sundays, he attended a Christian church. But he said, the congregation did not strike me as being particularly religious. They were not an assembly of devout souls. They appeared rather to be worldly-minded people going to church for recreation and in conformity to custom. He therefore concluded that there was nothing in Christianity which he didn't already have. And so Gandhi was lost to the Christian church with incalculable consequences for India and the world. But here, people, I challenge you this morning. Talk is cheap. Sitting in church looks so pious. Profession of faith rolls off our lips so smoothly as we gather here on Sunday. But is there fruit? Is your life different because of the Lord Jesus? What is really the focus of the affections of your heart? Do you really love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength seven days a week? Or does your interest in the things of God get turned off as quickly as you walk out the door of this building? This morning, I must warn you, God hates hypocrisy. You can fool me. And I can fool you. But before God, we're both just fools. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, he will reap. Hypocrisy invites God's judgment. For God hates fakes. Perhaps you say, I know all that. I'm painfully aware of the fruitlessness of my life, but what can I do? I can't change it. How can it be different? Where's the power to change? Well, fortunately, our text does not end with this first point. If we did, we would be driven to despair, <clears throat> to despair by our own inconsistencies. But it goes on to present a second great truth here. And that's this. When there's no way faith dares to ask, even when there's no way, faith dares to ask. 
We seem to have a compulsion to reduce the faith down to what we can understand and explain. And then along comes a passage like this and explodes all of our theories, pushes the walls out of our explanations. Let me read the second part again, verse 20 to 22. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Are you kidding? <laughs> what on earth does this text mean for us? Well, perhaps we can begin to understand what it means by admitting some things which it cannot mean. First, Jesus cannot be saying that our faith has power over God. To do whatever we want, even if it's not what God wanted. No. No, no, no. God is always sovereign. He does nothing that is inconsistent with his own will. No matter what anyone believes, no matter what anyone asks of him. All of our faith and all of our prayer must be subject to his will. Second thing it does not mean. Jesus is not teaching some pop psychology. That we have some inherent power in our psyche to make things happen. Simply by willing it to be or visualizing it as accomplished. That we might call magic. That's humanism gone astray. That is attributing to man the supernatural power of God. That is rubbish. Third thing, nor is Jesus saying that we can do the supernatural for our entertainment. Throwing literal mountains into literal seas by our power. Jesus undoubtedly speaks in hyperbole when he speaks of moving mountains. For such a display of power is not even consistent with Jesus' own miracles, which were signs confirming his teaching and his claims, not entertainment. So Jesus is not teaching those things. So what is he teaching about faith? When we've removed all the things that it cannot be, it's still mind-boggling. Well, what Jesus holds before us, I would tell you, is his own example for us to imitate. We know from other texts that Jesus did nothing of his own initiative. He says, I don't do anything of my own initiative. I only do what the Father tells me. But within that stance, he was not timid. His limitations were not defined by the situation, by people's expectations, by what possibilities seemed logical or whatever else. The only limitation was the will of his all-powerful Father. So Jesus calls us to act in his name after his example. He tells us to believe God and do his will 
not being limited by our power or our understanding or our skill or our resources or our experience or anything else, when there's no way, no way it can, be ha- it can happen, no way it can come to pass, faith still dares to ask God. You see, when we remove the things which this cannot mean, we're still, we still have this vast realm of reality that we do not understand. And it's right there that we are to believe God and ask him and expect him to act according to his will and his power, but not limited by us, by our power. This is not conjuring up some courage to believe what we know is not so. This is simply recognizing there is a God in heaven who does whatever he pleases. So when we're called, so we're called to be diligent to understand what his will is and then to ask him and trust him to do that which he said pleases him. For even when there's no possible way, faith dares to ask. Does that include asking for the impossible? Absolutely. Otherwise, this text is a farce. It's merely attaching religious language to cause and effect relationships, which we all understand and accept. Oh, but before we get carried away with all the lesser things, let's not forget the most, the very most impossible request we might ever make. This would be when we would dare to ask the infinitely holy, blameless God of justice to remove our sin and give us a new heart to supernaturally regenerate us with life eternal, to make us a new creation from the inside out, and to enable us to change the evil things we love and love the things we've always hated, including God himself. Now that would be an impossible request. There is just no way. How could a holy, just God do that? It's not something we deserve. It's not something we can make happen in a thousand lifetimes. But this is the good news of the gospel, that God sent his son to bear our sins, and now he powerfully saves undeserving sinners who simply dare to ask him, and to believe his promise. But this is not just the way we receive this new life. This is the way we live it out. When there's no way, when it seems impossible, faith still dares to ask God for what God said was his will. I'm not saying we have some secret weapon to make God work for us. That's blasphemy. God doesn't work for us. We work for him. He's God. We're not. But it does mean that as we serve him, learning what his will is and believing he is able to do what he says, 
We are to ask him to do his will in every situation. And not because we can make it happen, knowing we cannot make it happen. We simply ask. And sometimes he does what we never dreamed possible. And we find ourselves actually participating in his work by knowing his will and then daring to ask and trust him to do it. At those times, we understand that by faith, we experience the power of God at work in the world. You see, we do not agree with the popular view that the universe is an impersonal machine running according to some impersonal force which man, with mankind caught in the gears. Oh no. God has made it clear that he is a person. He controls history. He involves himself in the lives of his people. And he desires that his people participate with him in his mighty work by believing what he said, by asking him to do his will, and by honoring him as he does. That's what Jesus desired to see in the temple. Not all the buying and selling, but a house of prayer where his people ask him to do what he had promised. Even when there's no way, faith dares to ask. This morning I call you to live by faith. This is the difference between God-centered Christianity, which is alive and powerful, and the secularism that passes itself off as Christian by attaching some Christian terminology. One is the living God dwelling in the midst of his people who walk by faith. The other is nothing but old-fashioned humanistic unbelief wrapped up with hypocritical God talk. This morning I'm challenging you to consider what God has said, what he has revealed of his will, and dare to ask him. Ask him. And trust him. Beyond the scope of your own ability to produce results. I remember when I finally realized I only ever asked God for things that I could guarantee would happen if he didn't come through. That's not faith. When there's no way, faith still dares to ask God to do his will. Two great truths this morning. God hates fakes. To people, hypocrisy is poison in the church. It invites God's judgment. And secondly, but when there's no way, when it's impossible, faith still dares to ask. This sounds very different than the first point. But in reality, they're very much alike. For the hypocrisy that turns people's, people into fakes involves the same lack of faith which fails to ask and trust God for anything. 
but the righteous will live by faith. Amen. Let's pray.